0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, we bring back our master of the small cap enterprise, Mr. Eric Cinnamon. Eric has been a portfolio manager for over two decades and is a regular guest here on the Investors Podcast. And on today's show, Eric provides a pitch on three different small cap companies while Stig and I troubleshoot and ask Eric some of the contrarian and hard questions. This is a great episode if you're a student of financial valuation and trying to find undervalued picks in the marketplace and just generally trying to understand how to think about going through that entire process. So, without further delay, here's our discussion with Eric Cinnamon.
2: You are listening to the Investors Podcast, where we study the financial markets
0: and read the books that influence self made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pishon. As always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And today, we are talking small cap stocks, like we said in the intro there, and we got the one and only Eric Cinnamon with us. Eric, welcome back to the show. So awesome to have you here.
2: Thanks. It's great to be back.
1: So I love these episodes because we're always talking about the big companies but there's tons and tons of great small cap businesses that you can find out there. And there's tons of them. It's just hard to know the specifics and they've kind of get bumped around a little bit more in the marketplace because they are competing with big contenders and mid cap and large cap. So I'm excited to talk to you about a couple companies that have piqued your interest and we want to go a little deep into just a couple companies opposed to just talking the broad industry and just talking general information. So let's dig into some things. Let's show some people how you do your analysis. Let's hear it. So like what would be one of your first picks that you would want to talk about, Eric?
2: Well, I've got one that just the name of it's going to turn a lot of people off. It's called Natural Gas Services. What they do is they manufacture and lease natural gas compressors. So it's a pretty exciting business. It's about... a um Hundred seventy million market cap, so probably is not going to make it on a lot of your screens. And right now they're near the trough of the cycle, so they're not making a lot of money. So if you screen on on income, you know net earnings, you're probably going to miss this type of stock.
1: Yeah, and that was one of the first things. So before we started recording, Eric sent over the three tickers that he was going to discuss. And so when I was just looking through the financials on this one, that is exactly what stuck out to me was the net income for 2018 for the last year was literally nothing. But the years before, you were doing 20 million, 6 million, 10 million, 14 million. So it's knocking out anywhere from like 10 to 20 million a year. And then the top line on the company for 2018 was 65 million. So talk to us why you're thinking right now is a great time versus any other time.
2: Well, it's a natural gas compressor company. So it's tied to the E&Ps, you know, the energy industry, and obviously extremely cyclical. So I always like to buy cyclicals near the troughs. And this definitely applies for, for natural gas services, where you know natural gas exploration is you know in the tank right now is probably going to get worse with natural gas near two dollars. The business also is used for oil. So just overall, the industry is becoming much more disciplined with CapEx. You know you see a declining rig count right now. Really since 2014, energy service has been you know pretty much in a bear market with near trough results. In this case, natural gas services is almost an um, asset valuation. You know, we usually, the way we run money is we usually value businesses discounting future free cash flows. And I know, know you guys do a lot of that as well. Sort of that perpetual bond, the high quality business, where natural gas services at this point, the assets are very inexpensive relative to any type of replacement costs or even the market value of their assets. So, so this one would be more of an asset valuation where you can buy, you know, we have a market cap of 170 million, and they have total assets of 300 million and only 40 million in liabilities 30 million of that is deferred taxes you know long term liabilities so see so you, you really only have about you know, maybe a little 10 15 million of true liabilities there that might be due in the near term with 300 million in assets tangible book value of near $19 a share and the stocks at $13 so a significant discount to tangible book you know 0.7 this is the cheapest the stock has been since the crisis of 2009. So this is a good example of a net asset valuation instead of a discounted cash flow valuation.
3: So, Eric, whenever you say we are the trough of the cycle, how do you identify that?
2: Well, you can look at historical rig counts. That usually gives you a good indicator of where you are in the cycle. And right now, we are, we are very low in the rig counts. I would say it could go lower, just the, uh, the way the industry, energy industry has become more disciplined with their CapEx and cash flows. This is the first time I can remember my career, and I've been doing this for quite a while, with energy, where they are living within their cash flows. And if prices of natural gas and oil continue to fall, I think you could see lower CapEx. But uh, natural gas services is, a, is an interesting situation where their compressors, which, by the way, are used to increase productivity uh, wells, Increased productivity. The compressors are also used to transport the gas from the wells to the midstream assets or the pipelines. Again, very tied to the capex of the energy industry. So overall, you know, it could go lower for sure, but that's why you wanna have sort of an energy service coming with a very strong balance sheet, which they do. You know, they have a 70 million in networking capital, 30 million in cash. It's very rare that you see an energy firm that focuses on full cycle profitability. They've done a good job historically of, of only investing when they're getting paid to take risk, and they'll do it aggressively with their cash. And then when they're not getting paid, they won't. So it reminds me a lot of, of how we manage money. You're getting paid to take risk, you should. And when you're not, you don't. And that's why you'll see their cash actually fluctuate on the balance sheet considerably. You know, it's been as high as over $60 and it's lowest near nothing. But they do not, you're not going to debt. You know, it's very important that you have these strong balance sheet names. So to answer your question, it could go lower. But if it is does go lower, you want to own... A cyclical that has a good balance sheet where the competitors, most of their competitors, some of our LPs, they pay dividends, their cash flows are constrained, their balance sheets are much more levered, highly levered. Many of their competitors it's a competitive advantage. And I think as we go through this cycle, what we'll find, I think, especially when it ends, the balance sheets are going to really become important. The three names we're going to talk about all have great balance sheets. And I think that's the, the theme we're focusing on right now.
1: So, you're saying that because NGS doesn't have that model where they're having to pay out these very large dividends, it gives them a lot more flexibility in the way that they can invest and prepare themselves for risk on, risk off type behaviors. Is that, am I hearing you right or is there something more to it?
2: No, that's exactly right. I mean, a strong balance sheet is a competitive advantage, especially for a cyclical business. I mean, the last thing you want to do as an owner of, or if you're renting these compressors, and by the way, they do rent most of their uh, revenues are for rentals, 75%, and uh, the other quarter is, is sales of the compressors. So it's actually a pretty good business. You know, the, the rental gross margins are, are very impressive. But yeah, I mean, they, they will get some large clients because of their balance sheet.
3: Let's go into a little more detail with industry itself. What are you seeing right now?
2: The low prices, you know, natural gas right now is near $2 MCF, which is very low, well below break even for a lot of companies. Been so much production especially with in the permian and the oil related areas where, where natural gas is a, a byproduct you can't give it away you know the only thing worse than natural gas right now I think it's toxic waste you know you have to pay money to pull it out I mean you could flare it but you can only flare it for so long you know you, you get a license for that so yeah you, you should probably pay attention to the cycle the energy cycle but but what I like about the energy cycle because of the shale wells the lives are so short that the cycles are relatively compressed you know if these wells end, their lives are 12 to 18 months, or the majority of their lives are, you you need need to replace these reserves, you know, about 25% a year. $2 natural gas, I think, is going to go a long way in um, solving the natural gas glut. And I know it's called a glut. But if you look at the five-year average inventory, it's not that bad. And if you look at demand, it's been growing quite a bit. You know, you have the coal displacement. You've got uh, exports to Mexico. More coal displacement and some nuclear displacement coming up. So, so natural gas demand has been growing about three percent a year, and that doesn't include the uh, uh, liquid natural gas that's we're going to be exporting and have been, and and that's probably going to double in the next couple of years as well. So, so overall, you know, I'm not not too bearish on natural gas, but it's just it's definitely contrarian right now to uh, own anything related to natural gas and for natural gas services it actually has it in its name, which probably creates a twenty thirty percent discount alone.
1: <laughs> yeah, they need to rebrand it. I'm kind of curious if you are, when you talk sizing for this, is this something that you're kind of dipping your toe in the water to try to ease into it? Or do you think that you're at a very good buy point where you should probably be accumulating quite a bit of the, of the stock?
2: We could probably only discuss what we've owned at uh, June 30th. That's our last disclosure. We owned a small weight at that time, but as the discount grows, you know, historically we do add to the position. And we initially bought it. The discount was relatively small, but it has increased since then. You know, that's something something we like to do over time. As long as it has a good balance sheet and the valuation hasn't changed, in this case, they just released earnings. And uh, the tangible book, you know, remains Steady actually grew, grew slightly. What's really interesting about these cyclicals, you know, this isn't normally what we own. Just to be clear, normally we want to own that perpetual bond, that steady eddy. But uh, this is the environment we're in where these steady eddies are so expensive, you know, people are using cap rates that are extremely low to value these high-quality franchise businesses. You know, so so here we are in these these oddball companies that they don't show up well on screens. You know, but if you look at this thing and you go back ten years, the tangible book was around ten dollars in two thousand eight, and now it's around nineteen. I mean, it's a nice compounder on tangible book. You know, and I know a lot of value investors look at that. They they always want these compounders, but you can compound in a cyclical nature and still go from ten dollars tangible book to nineteen dollars tangible book. And still have a nice, you know, seven, six, seven percent annualized tangible growth in book value, but it's just lumpy. Again, it's another asset-heavy compounder with a great balance sheet. So if you go into a meeting right now and you want to talk to a consultant, a large client, and uh, they ask you what you like, and you just say natural gas
3: services, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not good for business. But uh, but just remember the miners. I mean, we remember the last time we talked, same thing, you know the career risk you take on for owning these things. And I think natural gas services applies. Anyone buying this right now is going to take on quite a bit of career risk because everyone knows natural gas is a bad business.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com.
3: All right, back to the show. If you're going to be successful in the market, you have to have the courage to invest in stocks that are very unpopular, and you got to be right. So let's talk about the next stock pick, Gencore Industries. The stock ticker is GENC. Please tell us what they do and why the stock is on your radar.
2: Well, they are a market leader. They share market leader status with Aztec Industries, A-S-T-E. They're a market leader in asphalt plant equipment. Their business is highly tied to highway road construction, government spending on those areas, and the certainty of that spending over time. Really, 2009, 2014, there was a bill that provided certainty. And then the FAST Act came in, and I believe, actually, I believe that was 2015, and that expires September of 2020. That created certainty for the industry. Sales for GenCorp went from 40 million to 100 million. So they spiked, and actually earnings look very good over that period. Extremely cyclical business, but again, depends on the certainty of highway funding. If we approach the end of the FAST Act, what you're gonna find is uncertainty for funding for highway spending. And I think you're seeing it right now where their backlog is declining. Uh, The earnings are declining, and the revenue is probably gonna be declining pretty hard in the next couple of quarters. But it gets 170 million market cap, 160 million total assets, 150 million of those are current assets, 100 million, 11 of that is cash and marketable securities, extremely liquid balance sheet, and they have 27 acres in Orlando, owned free and clear (laughs) near downtown Orlando. So there's some undervaluation of real estate as well.
1: I mean, your comment about the uh, current assets is somewhat mind blowing. So, explain for people that are new to finance or maybe don't understand the magnitude of what you just said. Explain that to them. 150 million of the total there. I think it was like 160 or something. It was very close to the current number yeah, of assets. That's right. Explain to people what that means.
2: So, the 162 million of assets. So, you're buying the business for uh, 175 million. And it has 162 million of assets, and 154 million is current assets. 111 million of that is actually liquid in cash and marketable securities. And it's an interesting story how they got their cash. They built two uh, synthetic plants for um, Carbotronics. This was a long time ago. Part of the payment wasn't just in cash, they gave them ownership of, of two of these plants, and they got massive tax credits for these and eventually large cash payments. I mean, they got a ton of cash and it is invested some in corporate bonds and in equities as well. So you should know that there's some market risk there. But what this is saying is the business is extremely liquid, even though it's cyclical and they do lose money in downturns, it's not significant relative to their cash. And again, it's a competitive advantage. So when you, you value things on book value. They're not all created equally, and that's one of the things with natural gas services as well. What you have is with GenCorp a book value of 150 million. Well, most of its assets, right? So it's like 160 million in assets and 10 million in liabilities. I mean, that's really incredible. Where you don't have the risk and the liabilities. And usually, when people look at book value, they're just thinking of their assets, but there's also liability risk.
1: Well, and I think it's important that if a particular company like this is being traded heavily based off of the book value and you have all those risks on the balance sheet, now all of a sudden the valuation gets really elastic. I guess I'm just adding a little bit more context to your comment because it makes so much sense after you describe it that way. And I think that there's a, there's a huge learning point there for a lot of people that if you are using the the balance sheet or the book value to help measure value or you're using that as your multiple, think about that, what he just described, because that's, I mean, that's a huge tip.
2: Yeah. And another thing I would recommend, and again, these are all for, sort of tangible book valuations, look over a long period of time and through all their cycles and look for the write-offs because you can have a large tangible book, which in this case we have with, with NGS, not so much with GenCorp, but as much more liquid. We could talk about that as far as the discount goes. But if you go back to natural gas services and look at historically after the crash in, in the energy industry, and then you look for the write-offs and actually in 2014 was a very nasty environment and they had a tiny write-off. It was like $900,000 net. Very insignificant relative to 300 million. But if you look at a lot of energy companies, yes, you could find plenty of discounts to book. But if you look historically at them you know, over a long period of time, especially the EMP companies, you'll find multi million dollar, hundred millions of dollars of write offs.
3: That's very interesting, Eric. And in continuation of this, what is the big risk factor for Jane Industries? Where could you be wrong in your assessment? The allocation
2: of the 111 million in cash. So it's a good thing and a bad thing. But historically, you know, they've held on to this. And I think they could do an acquisition in the future. But I think they've done a good job of, of waiting. Well, obviously, they waited a very long time. So that gives me comfort. But that would be a, a very big risk where they did an acquisition. Because extremely cyclical companies don't like being cyclical. You know? And they might do something with that cash to try to change who they are. You know, I like the embrace, Hey, we're a 40 million to hundred million revenue company, depending on where we are in the cycle, normalize it, you know, and you could come up with a 4 million or so free cash for a year. It's not a bad business, but if you go buy something completely different, you could completely alter this business. So that's going to be the tricky part for them. Interesting.
1: Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, try this last one here, the Crimson Wine Group. And this is a uh, ticker CWGL.
2: It's the same market cap. It's funny, all, all three of these are 170 million. It fits with our view on small caps right now, where you're finding value is you know, away from the perpetual bond, high quality names. You know, Everyone wants to own a franchise right now in wide moat. Those are very expensive in our opinion. You know, it goes back to owning the good balance sheets. And, but also the smaller market caps, you know, we're trying to veer away from you know, in the small cap crowds and the ETFs and the, and the crowd of mutual funds. So this, this is another one extremely underfollowed. They don't even do a press release when they announce earnings. It's called a Crimson Wine Group, the symbol CWGL. Again, very underfollowed, 170 million market cap, 211 million in stockholders' equity, and they're a winery. And we believe their acreage, specifically their Napa acreage, is undervalued because the uh, it's on the book at cost. They started this building these uh, these assets in in the early '90s. So uh, this is a neat one. And if you're you're in a period of unlimited quantity of easing and you want a hard asset, This something might be for you.
1: <laughs> I like that. I'm looking at the income statement. So you talked a lot about the balance sheet and you talked about why you think that the balance sheet is not reflective of reality. When we do look at the income statement in 2018, the top line was $68 million. The bottom line was $2 million. And so we're looking at a very low margin kind of business. I mean, around like 3%. Kind of margins. Is that normal for the wine industry? I'm not an expert in the wine industry for companies of this size. Is that pretty normal?
2: You know it's all over the place. You know, some of them, like a the constellation brands, have pretty high margins. This they do uh, ultra high end wine. So their margins are all over the place, too, actually, their gross margins. And what you have is certain wine harvests. They use a third of their wines in the Napa Valley for their own wine, but then they also buy two-thirds of their wine uh, grapes. So grape harvests are, our week, you know, which we've had over the past three years, great prices will increase and the margins will come down. So actually last year is a pretty rough year. This is clearly an acreage valuation where you're valuing the acreage of, of the winery or the vineyards. And we'll take each of the properties, apply a per acre value and get to a value on their acreage. And then we value the, the inventory, which is very high, and value the assets of the wineries. And Crimson doesn't have necessarily high high operating margins uh, over a cycle they tell us to buy these high ROE companies and high margin companies, high profitability. But low, low return on capital businesses aren't always bad investments because you are not the one paying the capital price. You know, that's some capital someone else paid for that capital, whether it was reinvested by the company. Or someone else, you know, maybe bought the IPO, but that capital was formed in another way. You are paying the market value. So if I can buy something like a 0.7 times valuation, that's what I'm paying. I'm not paying full price for that capital. Very important to look at the price you're paying for these businesses, and not necessarily just what the uh, returns are on the balance sheet of the particular capital that you didn't put up. You know, I love when people put up a lot of capital, and, and you can pay a, a you know nice discount to that capital and, and get to use it.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept
1: at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion helping you move more freely prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic find out more today call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com
0: Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah. So I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses,
3: Back to the show. Do you know if there are many buyers for the land? And the reason why I'm asking is that we're paying an opportunity cost for tying up our money into this investment. And we don't want to be stuck with valuable land that no one appreciates. So we would need a catalyst to drive the valuation. How do you see value being realized by the market?
2: They're very stable. It was very interesting. In the 0809 crash, they actually held up and didn't decline. But if you put that against like the San Francisco property values, residential real estate and not correlated at all, I mean, they, those collapse. So to answer your question, it's possible there's not a lot of people to sell to. But that's kind of a good thing when, say, this everything bubble pops. Historically, you know, this, this doesn't mean it will happen in the future, but historically, they've held up well and appreciate well. You know, there's only about 47,000 acres or I believe it's 45,000 acres of uh, Napa Valley acreage in California. But again, you're not going to get there on the income statement.
1: So on this one in particular, when you look at the price movement since the middle of 2017, it has been in a steady decline and a decline that... When you look at the volatility, the standard volatility that you would see in the company over an annualized basis, it appears that the volatility that we've seen since 2017 as it's been going down has been pretty standard. It doesn't look like the price has broken out or kind of demonstrated that something has changed. So is this one that you just kind of put on the shelf till you do see a breakout in that volatility range?
2: Yeah, this is one that, uh, and that's why we became interested in the idea. Uh, Jamie found it really because it had been declining for so long. You know, we've been doing these screens on asset-heavy companies. This one showed up. It's another one, you know, $211 million in stockholders' equity. We believe it's undervalued, and it showed up at a nice discount. So, uh, yeah, these are sleepy ones. I don't even think anyone knows when they announce they don't do a press release. It's very sleepy. Boring is, is often good. And that's really what we're looking for right now high quality asset, we can buy at a discount. And and yeah, we'll just put them in the portfolio and um, let them sit, let them mature. I've had these before where you wake up one day and something happens, but uh, you don't know when that day will be.
1: Yeah. It's kind of surprising to me. So I just looked it up on our uh, TIP Finance momentum tool. We can see what the annual volatility is for the company. And for a business of this size, small cap business, the annual volatility is only 13% on this company, which... I think is very low and, and not characteristic. I was expecting it to be way higher than that. Just something uh, interesting to think about considering that it is a small business. And you know, if you get into something and you, and it has very high volatility and you're wrong, it can be sometimes a very painful experience because you see <laughs> it operating inside of that range and yeah. you, you don't know if it's broken out or not. So
2: and another thing with these, uh, smaller ones and these asset heavy companies, you know, we talked about the competitors having a lot of debt. And the reason for that, you can borrow, use these properties, these assets as collateral. So it's very rare to find these type of asset-heavy companies without debt, just again, because of the ease of borrowing. And so I find that very refreshing. There's other ones out there that I can find a discount a book, but they have a lot of debt. You know, there's farm REITs. You know, I was interested in a farm REIT I was looking at recently, but I had, had too much debt. So Going back to the current assets, you know, they have uh, 107 million in current assets and only 7 million in current liabilities. So again, very few liabilities. It's just hard to get, get the liabilities wrong. There's just not many of them and quite a bit of liquidity. It's very rare to find uh, hard asset companies with, uh, with clean balance sheets and no debt.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at on our tool, we have a thing called a mini balance sheet. And for the assets on this company, it's $10.67 per share. Compared to one dollar and seventy five cents per liability, and I mean that's, that's just, right. It's huge.
2: Crazy. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. It's uh, and you know, insiders own twenty two percent. They're actually spun out of Luc- Lucadia in, in two thousand thirteen. They didn't really fit. So you have some insiders consistently buying. You know, not a lot, but just a little bit. They never sold a stock. So yeah, this is a sleeper, and, and probably won't do anything. It'll probably drip and go down and bother us, and we'll probably buy more. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So, this is my question for you. You listen to a ton of earnings calls for small cap companies always looking for the next stock pick. What is the common theme you learn from this latest earnings season?
2: I'm finding now that that the stock market and the economy seem to be highly correlated, which I don't think it should surprise anyone at this point in the cycle. and then q2 was it wasn't recessionary, you know I think a lot of bears, and you know I put myself in that camp. The uh, cash in the portfolio was about 92% at the end of June. So extremely high cash levels. So I would consider that bearish. Where the consumer sector seems to be doing quite well right now, but there's definitely more uncertainty in, in the more cyclical names, such as transportation. Energy is definitely slowing. Uh, I think you're going to have a weak Q3, Q4. And then some of the industrials as well, you know, obviously with export concerns. So, So it's definitely more mixed picture, but I don't see it as an environment where we need to be panicking at this point you know, all bets are off. You know, we have a 20, 30% decline in, in asset prices.
1: How does the bond market play into some of the ways that you're looking at where we're at in the entire business cycle? Because, I mean, you look around the world and you got all these negative interest rate bonds, especially over in Europe. The U.S. is the best in the world right now as far as getting any kind of yield. Do you have concerns of some of that spilling into the impacts to some of your positions in the small cap sector?
2: You know, we don't use sovereign debt or yields or, or risk-free rates for our valuation purposes. You know, when we discount future-free cash flows, we're typically using what we lend to a business and apply risk premium to that, because in our opinion, risk-free rates have nothing to do with the risk of the cash flows of a business, or very little to do, you know, outside what happens to the economy or the result from the economy of those low rates. So uh, it hasn't influenced our valuation process, but I would say it's definitely made my head hurt. And then when they have negative rates here, of course, it's coming. That's what I'm being told. I was listening to a manager on Bloomberg TV last night explain why sovereign debt should yield zero or less because there's no risk. <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 but
2: I'm like, here's a fiduciary on television you know, already explaining people are really justifying how you can own these things. It's concerning.
3: Yeah, you hear that argument about having no risk. And as long as you don't have a competitor to a fiat-based currency system with a fixed monetary baseline to some extent, one could make the argument that this rate can continue for a little while. Even though I don't think that risk-free is the right term, perhaps rude awakening might be the term we're looking for here. A
2: rude awakening is some very uncomfortable client meetings. <laughs> when they have to explain you know, how they bought 30-year debt <laughs> with a negative yield, I'm glad I'm not going to be in that meeting. I hope it doesn't come here, but it, I guess that's the new narrative, right? That they're already building it, that it's okay and justified. It, and this goes back to the operating results of the companies. You know, labor market is still pretty tight. Economy's not that bad. I mean, it will be if the market crashes, for sure. You know, that definitely well, a very nasty recession. But as it is right now, why these decisions are being made, things are not that bad to even be contemplating these type of rates and these type of policy measures. <laughs> it's very concerning. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, to say the least.
1: Well, Eric, I'll tell you what, we just love having you on. You're a breath of fresh air because you are you are down in the smaller businesses and just doing business the way business should be done. And I love it. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to these three companies. I'm sure people who were hearing how you described this, how you're coming up with your valuations learned a ton. We'd love to have you back anytime. So if people want to learn more about you, do you have a blog or anything that you'd like to hand them off to?
2: Yeah. Well, we, uh, we launched Palm Valley Capital. You know, we got a fund now started in April dot valleycapital.com. You can, you can uh, look us up. we got a blog there. You know, check us out.
1: Fantastic. We'll have a link for uh, folks that are listening to check that out. And thanks again for coming on the show.
3: Thanks guys. Appreciate you having me again. All right. So at this point in time in the show, we'll play a question from the audience and this question comes from Adrian.
0: Hi guys. My name is Adrian and I'm from Virginia. Thanks for all the information you provide to your listeners. I really appreciate it. My question is about position sizing. How do you determine how much to invest in one position over another? Do you ask yourself, is it worth it to put, say, 10% towards this pick for an 8 to 10% return versus 5% of another pick for a possible 20% return, but may include a bumpy ride with some additional risk? Or are you determining sizing based off of industry and economy at that moment in time or some sort of blended approach? Thanks, guys. I can't wait to hear back.
3: Thank you for your question, Adrian. Redalio has famously said that having 15 uncorrelated assets is the holy grail of investing. So, really, what you said about an idea of the risk and reward of various sectors and asset classes, I think that is important to have. But I also have the guiding principle that I don't know which is also why I would like to be diversified. So one thing is that we can talk about position size in the stock market. And I think that's very important. And I would say that I have a relatively concentrated portfolio. But the only reason why I have a concentrated portfolio is also because I have other assets that are not stocks, and they're uncorrelated with the stock market. So I also have a private business, I own some real estate and a few other assets. That really also influences how diversified you need to be in the stock market. Another thing that you bring up is the expected return. And yes, I do look at what the risk is of losing my invested amount when I make my position size. I can handle a lot of volatility, but if I do think there's a risk of losing my principal, but have a high upside that justifies it, I would definitely ensure to make many small bets and mitigate the downside risk in aggregate, and then combine it with the upside. But really, there are as many ways to construct your portfolio as there are investors. If you look away from ETF investing, which is different, and you only focus on individual picks, I would suggest that you have between 10 and 20 stocks. With more than 20 stocks, the gain of extra diversification from owning another, say, 100 stocks is almost non existing as long as the 20 stocks that you have are already diversified. And you will likely be stressed out more about having 20 stocks in your portfolio and even more on the watch list. And it's probably not worth your time you can, of course, also choose to buy an ETF. And the ETF that investors typically buy is a market-weighted ETF, meaning that the bigger companies are overrepresented. So for instance, in the S&P 500, Apple might be 4%. So if you buy the biggest and most diversified ETFs, it might even be an equal-weighted ETF, and you buy the stock market, you would typically not need more than two three ETFs. And depending on your strategy, you might argue that you can just buy one ETF. You have ETFs out there that covers all asset classes and has very, very little volatility. I recommend that you do not have more than 10% of your portfolio in one security. And this is only in securities where you think that the long-term risk of a permanent loss is close to zero. As certain as you might be that the investment thesis is correct, you could be wrong. Like Ken Fisher said here on a recent episode, even the best investors in the world are only right 70% of the time. So definitely always think about what Riddell has said about having 15 uncorrelated assets and why that is so important in investing.
1: So this is such a very, very important question because if you talk to anybody that's managed money that's been in the game for multiple decades, they'll be sure to tell you that it's all about position size. So what's incredible is you not only have to find winners, but you have to find winners that aren't correlated, according to Ray Dalio, who is one of the best investors ever. And so uh, I would like to share a tool with you that I found online that has helped me. And it helps you compare and contrast and understand the correlations between various stock picks and also various ETFs. Um, And the tool is called AIStockcharts.com. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out, but it's great because you can put in whatever picks you you have, whatever the tickers are, and it'll show you how correlated the, the picks are. So if you have a portfolio of 10 or 15 stocks and you want to see how correlated they are, you can use this tool to figure that out. It's very useful, and you know I, I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. Of all the stock conversations I've had with people through the years, it's very, very rare... That you talk to somebody and they talk about how they aren't investing in something or that they are investing in something because of the correlation between the picks. But I think that if you talk to somebody who's managing an enormous amount of money, this this is where they really focus their efforts. They try to find those winners and they try to understand the correlation between them because that helps them mitigate their risk. So Adrian, for asking such a great question, we have an online course called our Intrinsic Value Course that we're going to give you completely for free. Additionally, we have a filtering and momentum tool, which we call TIP Finance. We're going to give you a year-long subscription to TIP Finance completely for free. Leave us a question at asktheinvestors.com. That's asktheinvestors.com. If you're interested in these tools, simply go to our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. And you can see right there in our top level navigation, there's links to TIP Finance and also the TIP Academy where you'd find the Intrinsic Value Course.
3: All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Investor's Podcast. We see each other again next week.
2: Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.